Today we're looking at a pastorally difficult, pastorally huge topic, um, divorce and remarriage. So before I say anything more, let's just be clear. So I'm going to have to use two boards today. This is getting, wow, I know, I know. So let's imagine Bob and Sue, they get married in church. Yeah, Catholic Church. That means they're married for life. But Bob turns out to be a drunk. Maybe he's violent too. And so Sue leaves him. Then a while later, Sue and John hook up. They can't have a church wedding because she's already been married in church. So they have a government or civil wedding. That means, as we're going to note, she can't receive Holy Communion. She can't go to confession until something is resolved, which is part of what we're going to look at. So when I talk about divorce and remarriage, we're clear what I'm talking about when I say remarriage? Just trying to map this all out clearly. Now, there's... Another question, in terms of what process can happen, a thing called an annulment, which strictly speaking is a declaration of nullity. Um, this is made by the church. So the government doesn't make that declaration, the church makes that declaration. What is a declaration of nullity? Anybody? Is it that the marriage never actually happened? That it was not. It never happened. That in some sense it never happened. So yes, they were in church. Yes, there was the ceremony. Yes, they said the words. But something of what happened there, it actually wasn't an authentic marriage. He said the words, but he didn't really mean them. He said the words, and at the bachelor party the night before, um, he told his friends that um, he was already cheating on his wife-to-be, and he intended to keep cheating. So he didn't intend the words of faithfulness he was going to say the next day. That would be a very clear case where, and that scenario does happen, um, where there would be very obvious grounds for saying, yes, there was all the form there, but the words meant nothing. That was not a real marriage. Even if she meant it at that stage, he did not. And so this is a thing that involves the two of them. And so the church makes a declaration of nullity. So this popularized word annulment, strictly speaking, a declaration that it's null, of nullity. It never was a real marriage. 
if that's the case, then Sue is actually not married to Bob. And so therefore she's free to marry John or anybody else. So the parishioner in, you meet her in this situation, one of the things you can discuss with her is the possibility of looking at an annulment for her first union. Um, anyway, we'll come on to that a bit again. But the basic scenario, what we're talking about when we're talking about divorce and remarriage, we're all clear. A divorce of a Catholic marriage that is a marriage, a remarriage that isn't a Catholic marriage in some civil union, justice of the peace type scenario. Okay, so what are we going to look at here? So, summarizing our theological questioning here. Divorce and remarriage. So, what is, a few points, the level of nature Right, we've talked about natural law. The level of nature, what is there in marriage? Well, marriage isn't just a thing with the church, but marriage is a natural reality. So two good atheists can get married and it's a real marriage. If one of them's a Catholic, then they're bound to do it in church to express that they, in a sense, buy into the church's vision of what marriage is. That they're not getting married outside of the church because actually they don't hold with faithfulness or they don't hold with having children or something. But if you're not Catholic, not Christian, um, marriage is a real thing. It's a natural reality. Remarriage after divorce with your spouse still alive, remarriage thus violates your own nature. And it thwarts your own path to, to beatitude. kind of bottom line criteria there, an evangelical imperative. So do we have a word from the Lord on this topic? This is a question 
Your Bible Christian might well ask in many a scenario, do we have a word from the Lord on this? And despite this being one of the most debated topics down the centuries, actually we have very clear words from the Lord on this. And that's an evangelical, from the gospel, from the Lord himself, imperative. Words from the Lord. So St. Paul says, not I, but the Lord. And then he goes on to say, no divorce and remarriage. In the Gospels, we hear it recorded, whoever divorces and remarries commits adultery. Very direct words from the Lord. And that implies for us as pastors, but also on the people, a need for fidelity to the Lord, fidelity to his word, what he has spoken to us. Pastorally, what does this all imply? Because you are here training to be pastors, training to be priests. Remarriage, why is that a problem? Among other things, it's an ongoing status. It's not an isolated act. So if you rob a bank and you then repent and you go to confession, it was an individual act that you can be sorry for, walk away from, repent and be absolved. Remarriage is different in that you are remaining in that union. So you can't just go to confession, say, well, I was remarried um, and that act has happened. Well, if you're staying in that situation, you're remaining in it. Or, uh, can, I, can I have like a question or like an example? Go on. Uh, Father Mike Schmitz had an interview with this lady who like, basically she married and then remarried outside of the church like Bob and Sue and didn't get an annulment. And she like kind of made the joke. She was like, I had, she went to confession for this she'd been away from the church for so long and the priest like I can't annul you and then she had friends tell her I hate to pick on the Jesuits but anyways they told her like go to a Jesuit priest and they'll give you absolution for this and so she asked Father Mike his opinion he was like yeah I can't so anyways my question is like what what do you do when you start having priests that are going around telling people oh you don't actually need an annulment um, you can get married outside of the church and just go to confession or confess it um, you will have versions of that scenario in many different things. Priests who will say things contrary to the gospel. Um, 
we need to give an answer as a priest in a way that doesn't cause more division, cause more confusion, but we, but we need to be coherent ourselves. And I said here, thwarts your own path to beatitude. Even though this is a very difficult path, it's a path that is for their good, for their salvation as well. We need to be clear of that in our minds. And how we articulate it has to say that as well. If they hear in our tone, our attitude, here's just some random rule that you're not that comfortable with yourself, how are they going to be able to absorb it and make it part of their living? We need to have that sense ourselves. I know this is what the Lord said. I know this is very contrary to common opinion today. But because the Lord said it, I know it's for your good too. Not an easy path, but the real path. A lot of people out there, good parishioners, just don't understand the thought that there are priests out there saying different things. Um, you know, he's a Jesuit. He's been to school for 11 years. Um, how He must be right. Um, well, not necessarily. Yeah. You said earlier that if they're in a state of, like, remarriage and no, with no annulment, they can't go to confession? Yeah. I'll come on to that in, in detail in a minute. Okay, mapping out what is the solution. Here I'm just briefly stating everything before we then go through in detail. The solution is for them to separate the remarried couple. Or we're going to note there's this phrase, to live as brother and sister. We're going to note what that means. So if, they've, if for some reason they have to stay in the same house, then they have to be in the same house as brother and sister, not as brother, husband and wife. Or, transitionally, as a kind of step towards something else, step towards conversion, step towards sorting their, themselves, no Holy Communion, no confession, until their situation is resolved. And the priest, we need to call to conversion, which is frequently very awkward for ourselves to, but we must, to use this word of Pope Francis, that although it's a word of his, he did not invent the concept, it's not some newfangled thing, we must accompany them in that. Yeah. Have you ever actually had a couple say, okay, we'll live as brother and sister? Because that seems. Multiple times. Multiple times. Typically, like older couples? Not always. Um, That's surprising. 
I'm going to explain what's meant by that. So let's, this is, this is the summary before we get into the detail, okay? So, page one, I just want to start with the gospel texts so we're clear where this is coming from. So, start there, I say, remarriage forbidden by Christ. So, the catechism quotes um, saying, Michael, can you read that for us? The Lord Jesus insisted on the original intention of the Creator who willed that marriage be indissoluble. He abrogates the accommodations that had slipped into the old law. Between the baptized, a ratified and consummated marriage cannot be dissolved by any human power or for any reason other than God. And then I say, the words of the Lord as passed on in the Gospels. Hunter, can you read the first quote there? Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. And then Adam, can you read the next from Matthew? It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of unchastity, makes her an adulteress. Whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. And then the words of the Lord, not in the Gospels, but passed on to us by St. Paul. Uh, Josh? To the married I give charge, not I, but the Lord, that wife should not separate from her husband. If she does, let her remain single, or else be reconciled to her husband, and that the husband should not divorce his wife. Now in bold there, I indicated this, the words, except on the grounds of unchastity. Now what's meant by that? Unchastity, the Greek word there is porneia. Some translations will say, except on the grounds of adultery. Uh, the word for adultery in Greek would actually be moikia. So that's not, although that worked as a translation from the due reams in Latin, if we're being better scripture scholars and going to the Greek, porneia is the word. What does the porneia word mean? I say, the above Greek word used in those two passages in Matthew is variously translated and variously interpreted. Um, so in some sense it means immorality. So there are two standard but differing Catholic interpretations of the text. The first, the Pornea Clause, refers to certain incestuous Gentile unions that the Jews considered unchaste, or to polygamous unions. Such unions were thus never real marriages. One was obliged to leave them, and one would obviously then be free to marry someone else. And we know historically that that was a pattern among Jew, uh, Jewish converts from the Gentiles. So you were a Gentile, you had one of these unions where you were so closely related to your wife that under Jewish law that wasn't a real marriage. You then become a Jew because at the time of our Lord that was Jewish proselytism, they were making lots of converts. But you would then leave your spouse under Jewish law. Is that what the, the Lord is referring to? That might be what he's referring to. That would certainly be coherent. The second explanation is the exception refers to a ground for separation, but not to a ground for remarriage. Uh, and this is certainly what is articulated in canon law. If your spouse is unfaithful to you, if they commit adultery, that is a grounds for separating from your spouse. The church and canon law encourages you to try and be reconciled, but recognizes that this is 
such a grave thing in a relationship that these are grounds to separate. When you do this in third theology, you'll get a more satisfactory detail on this. But that in brief is, what does the Bible say, the word from the Lord? Over page two, flipping the page, um, separation. So, the church says you can't remarry because you are married. But that doesn't mean the church is so naive as to think you always have to remain living with um, a spouse in any circumstances. I say a Catholic couple may separate and even in civil law divorce, though in the eyes of God and his church they remain married. I note, in except in the case of adultery, any separation is temporary in the sense that it may only be morally maintained as long as the grounds for the separation remain. So your husband is a drunk. Now it might be, and that would be a drunken violent, and that would be grounds for the protection of your children to, to leave him. Um, but he then spends 10 years in AA and He's a reformed man, and when the grounds for separation cease, you are married, you should seek to, to come back together. Which doesn't mean that's easy, simple, but generally speaking, that is the, the pastoral picture um, to be sought. I'm going to move on now to page three. So what I'm, I've got a couple pages here considering the situation of Sue and John. Those that are, as I say, divorced and remarried. We're presuming that Sue here is a Catholic. Where does that leave her? She is Catholic, but she is divorced and she is remarried outside the church. Where does that leave her? So I say, living as a divorced and remarried Catholic. In italics at the top there, I know marriage is a public, not a private reality. Divorce and remarriage thus affects the remarried in their relationship with the community, the public of the church, and with the sacraments of the church. It's simply not true to say, well, you know, this is just what I'm doing privately. You get married in public, you live together, publicly, it affects everyone. What is the status of a divorced and remarried Catholic? According to the Catechism, they objectively contravene God's law in an ongoing status. Uh, Eric, can you read the first block quote there? Divorce. Divorce is a grave offense against the natural law. It claims to break the contract to which the spouses freely consented to live with each other till death. Divorce does injury to the covenant of salvation, of which sacramental marriage is a sign. Contracting a new union, even if it is recognized by civil law, adds to the gravity of the rupture. 
the remarried spouse is then in a situation of public and permanent adultery. Jake, can you read the next one? Divorce is immoral. Here. Divorce is immoral also because it introduces disorder into <coughs> the family and into society. This disorder brings great harm to the deserted spouse, to children traumatized by separation of their parents and often torn between them. And because of its contagious effect, which makes it truly a plague, truly a plague on society. It objectively contravenes God's law. It affects everyone else. It's not just a private reality. What therefore is their status within the church? The first bullet point there I say they cannot receive Holy Communion. Um, Josh, can you read that line for us? Their state. Uh, go on. Their state and condition of life objectively contradict that union of love between Christ and the church, which is signified and affected by the Eucharist. If these people were admitted to the Eucharist, the faithful would be led to error and confusion regarding the church's teaching about the indissolubility of marriage. So there are two parts of the argument JP2 gives there. One, the scandal and confusion caused to others if they are still receiving communion in the church. The other is receiving communion is about this participation in the wedding banquet between you and the Lord. And yet your marriage wedding banquet is not living up. There's a contradiction there. Church says also, quoting the Catechism, that they cannot exercise certain ecclesial responsibilities. And I know, but doesn't specify further. And I asked the question, would being choir master or organist or chairperson of the parish pastoral council, would those be excluded roles? Now the church doesn't specify, so it therefore pretty obviously comes down to the local pastor. Um, I've been in parishes where the position of organist was a very public thing, everyone saw. The organist was in that sense a role model to everyone. If the organist was living something in their life that was publicly not in harmony with the church's teaching, that creates a contradiction. I've been in other churches where the organist is barely known by name. They're up in a choir loft, not seen. There are all kinds of things in a particular parish, how you'd map that out would look different. But you have to think, what is this person's role in the parish? What signal is that sending? And that also is going to depend on somehow how they carry that as well. You know, if they're kind of strident about it, and, well, the church says that, but um, then having them in a public role becomes more difficult. My next bullet point, they cannot receive absolution in the sacrament of penance. Now, why? Say, because they've not repented of their sin against marriage, that their status is ongoing. So when you go to confession, you need a firm purpose of amendment that I'm confessing this, 
I intend not to do it again. So I might confess impatience. And I intend not to be impatient again. I know I fall, and I know I'm likely to be impatient again. I confess laziness. I know I fall. I know I'm likely to be lazy again. But I can't coherently confess something that I'm intending to stay in. So I say they can't be admitted to penance unless I say he or she is, quoting the Catechism, committed to living in complete continence. This is this brother and sister phrase. We'll come on to what that means next. So what is the church's role to them? Your role to them? I say the call to repentance. I, we cannot view their situation as acceptably permanent and thus bar from Holy Communion. I say thus, their bar from Holy Communion is referred to as being as long as this situation persists rather than being permanent. So we're wanting their situation not to continue. The bar only lasts as long as the situation persists. And there are a lot of good priests out there that kind of have reconciled themselves and others with this by just saying, well, you can be a good Catholic, but you're just not allowed to go to communion. And that's not really what the church is saying. The church is saying something that for us is kind of more awkward still, that we need to indicate to them, this thing about you not receiving communion is temporary and that we're wanting you to move beyond this. Next I say, the church's role, manifesting an attentive solicitude so that they do not consider themselves as separated from the church in whose life they can and must participate as baptized persons. There are all kinds of other things in the life of the church that they can still be a part of, that they should still be a part of, that they should still be at Sunday Mass. Um, and we should have a attentive solicitude, you know, with any sinner to not just say what you've done is wrong, but to somehow say, yes, it's wrong, but please come, come along. Or at least come along as far as, as you're going to today. Okay, the phrase brother and sister, which we've already had, what does that mean? Page four. So living as brother and sister. So as indicated above, somebody divorced and remarried may be admitted to sacramental absolution and thus to Holy Communion if he or she is committed to living in complete continence, i.e. the couple resolved to live as brother and sister is the phrase. So Sue and John here. They talk together, they think about this, um, they entered into this when they, maybe Sue wasn't attending Mass for a few years, then she starts coming back to Mass and they're kind of reviewing their whole thing. They talk to each other and they resolve together, they're going to stay in the same house, but they're going to live as brother and sister, not as husband and wife. What does that mean? Some bullet points here. 
A couple need to somehow be able to do this without causing public scandal. Say, especially to other Catholic parishioners who might be led to think that remarriage is all right because these respected people are married Catholics and appear to be living together as husband and wife. You know, father goes over there for dinner. Um, he is always chatting with them at the barbecue. Uh, it looks like everything is all right. So there's a risk of public scandal here. Next bullet point. After such absolution, so Sue and John, I say, they've had this talk together, they've resolved to live as brother and sister. In that state, they come to the priest in confession, they map it all out. Whenever I've done that, there's been a part of that conversation outside of confession with me kind of explaining what it all means. And then at some stage, okay, we're ready to resolve to do this. And then we kind of put it all together in absolution, in, in confession. What is it? Um, after such absolution, they might receive Holy Communion, but would need to do so in such a way that did not cause scandal to others. For example, to do so in a parish where they're not well known. I've got a couple quotes here, first from the CDF itself, then from a commentator, John Boyle, and then from the Pontifical Council for the Interpretation of Legislative Texts. First one, could you read, Brother Adam? This means in practice. This means in practice that when for serious reasons, for example, for the children's upbringing, a man and a woman cannot satisfy the obligation to separate, they take on themselves the duty to live in complete continence that is by abstinence from the acts proper to married couples. In such a case, they may receive Holy Communion as long as they respect the obligation to avoid giving scandal. Adam, can you read the next one? The manner of avoiding scandal is that, living as brother and sister, they receive Holy Communion in a place where the fact of their divorce and civil remarriage is not commonly known. And Hunter? Given that the fact that these faithful are not living more more uxorio is per se a cult I secret sorry I secret so the fact that brother and sister is secret but while their condition as persons who are divorced and remarried is per se manifest they will be able to receive eucharistic communion only remoto scandalo in a remote situation, avoiding scandal. Um, yes? In such a situation, uh, would they have to inform the priest about the situation if they were in a remote place that they didn't? Um, so if the other priest right. doesn't know the situation at all, then I think that's just unnecessarily complicating matters. Okay. Um, they might choose to do so, but if they thought at some stage he might find out or suspect or whatever, um, but no, they wouldn't need to. Um, I got a follow up to that. Okay. Um, would it be better to like, encourage people in that situation to separate? Because like, it seems like that's a very yes. right. Okay, so 
Right. So the premier facie, the, the first situation would presume they're actually not married, so therefore they should separate. They, as I envisage, Sue spent a decade away from the church, got this civil marriage while away from the church. She then starts practicing again. All things being equal, they should then separate. But there are many grounds for them not to separate. The most standard referred to in texts was briefly noted there, they have children together. So Bob and Sue had two children, um, but then Sue and John, they've got two children as well. Now, if Sue separates from John, these children will de be deprived of their father. So that's an injustice to the children for them to separate. So therefore, that would be the kind of textbook example of a ground for the two of them to stay together in the same house. Um, which isn't going to be a straightforward situation, it's going to be easy, but for the sake of the children, those would be grounds to stay together. Yeah, yeah. Significantly more serious, but like you, you can't have a perfect solution. So let's instead come up with a solution where, at the very least, in general, you're not sinning, even though it is more dangerous for you as a person. Exactly. So there isn't, there isn't a solution here that is going to be perfect and utterly tidy. What's the most workable way forward, without sin, um, without injustice to the children? Can I flag up another scenario? So Sue and John are still young and they still have children. An example you get at the end of life or towards the end of life, and I've encountered this multiple times, um, when death is on the horizon, you suddenly start taking on a whole lot of questions a lot more seriously. And you realize, okay, we've been living in this civil union for 40 years together, and we've kind of always known it was wrong. And maybe we didn't tell the priest the parish we were in. And he always thought we'd had a, a church wedding because how would he know otherwise? Um, you then go to the priest and you're wanting to put it right. But you're so old and frail that separating actually would cause a kind of physical hardship that just isn't a reasonable or isn't a required demand. So during the remaining year or so that you expect to be living together, you're going to stay in the same household so that you can physically support each other, but somehow as brother and sister, not as husband and wife. And if I can just throw in there, you will learn in the confession, couples stop having sex very early in life in some cases, and they continue having sex very late in other cases. So your stereotype that young people, they're at it all the time and old people aren't, um, 
it's it's not that simple. Um, so you've got this is case by case. You've got to work with the different people, and so you will find couples that are relatively young that will say, "No, we we can do that," or "I know this is difficult, but I've been attending this this men's group. I've been working through this, that, and the other, um, and I know this is going to be tough, but I want to do this." So, if Sue and John have no intention of solving the situation appropriately but Bob dies through okay no right yeah yeah so Bob dies Sue is therefore not married um, in the eyes of the church she's also not married to John but she would be free then to get married to him and the process in terms of paperwork is very simple and straightforward for that um, pastorally then to kind of talk Sue into a position of repentance without hammering the point so hard that she just doesn't want to go to confession about this that she says but I love John all along and Bob was you know terrible to me and whatever A point that I've often made is in such a thing, you're repenting of what was wrong in the situation. You're not rejecting everything that was good and enjoyable. The meals down the years that Susan, Sue and John had together, the waltz in the countryside that they enjoyed, they're all kinds of things that they can say, yes, those were good, yes, we enjoyed together. What I'm repenting of is the packaging of it that was wrong even though I can't envisage quite how that would have been otherwise how we could have had those but not been in an improper marriage so what you're repenting of I think is one way of helping someone make that step um, can I move on just and a couple more points and then see if we've still got questions okay because this isn't a pastoral theology course. This is, um, when I drew up this course with dot D, we were trying to say, well, this is an introductory course using the catechism, but there are some topics that are so big pastorally in our era that although this is a relatively small number of paragraphs, this is a, a valid thing to spend a whole lecture on. So that's, that's what, but we're only doing one lecture on it. Okay, I see bottom section of that page, page four, Brother and sister do not share a bed together. Say, and there would need to be some reason, some grounds for them to continue living with this other person. Otherwise, there's this general obligation to separate. And I say such grounds would frequently be the mutual support for children's upbringing. Briefly running through page five here. Yes. How do you, I'm just curious how you would treat your children in your remarried state. Because in a normal marriage, you treat them, or like you, you act as a married couple, a normal married couple would, but when you're as brother and sister, how do you relate to each other and teach your children what the married life is, is like? Kind of? Imperfectly. Um, so you're right to say there's going to be something there that the children are going to look at and it's going to not quite look normal. Um, 
But actually, there's all kinds of ways where that's true, because there's no such thing as a perfect, perfect marriage. Um, there would be phases when you maybe not, wouldn't explain to the four-year-old. Um, at some stage, it could be incredibly edifying to the teenager to realize that fidelity to the gospel has led your, his parents to follow this difficult path. Page five. What happens, basically, denying communion to those who refuse to refrain from it. So all this has been kind of saying the unmarried couple shouldn't be going to communion. What happens when they march up anyway? What, what do you do? Okay, let me run through my bullet points and then we can have questions. So first, I say a priest should seek to check the facts of the situation. You will often hear things secondhand. Uh, Betty will come and tell you all kinds of things that Betty doesn't really know. Check the facts. Second, he should seek to talk to the person or couple concerned. Check the facts. Most obvious way to do that is with the couple themselves. Um, then talk to them. What should you explain? Why you may not receive communion at present. What repentance in your situation involves, which we've mapped out. What living in continence would mean for them as brother and sister or as separated. The possibility of remaining continent while applying for and awaiting a result for a decree of nullity from the previous marriage. So, Sue asks her diocese to give a declaration of nullity. There's a long process of working through that. While she's waiting for that, she either doesn't go to communion or they live as brother and sister until they know whether they're going to be free to be married. Those are the two options there. I say the, the need to recognize the possibility of not being granted a decree of nullity and recognizing that marriage enjoys this thing called the favor of the law. So the presumption is it is a marriage unless there are grounds showing the opposite. I say explain to them that marriage is a public, not a private reality, and thus the public determination by the authority of the church of the validity or invalidity of their first marriage is something that pertains to the very nature of marriage as a public reality. So all that is what you should try and explain to them when you talk to them. See, but if they insist on presenting themselves for communion anyway, you should refuse them right there at the altar rail. And I add, given that people will sometimes deliberately make it difficult for you to talk to them about awkward things, a priest might have to refuse without being able to speak to them privately. So someone comes in late to mass and leaves early. You're never able to talk to them and you realize after a certain stage, I don't think this is an accident. Or they'll always come and talk to you after mass with somebody else around so you can't have a real conversation. There are lots of people who will either 
in some sense willfully or not quite willfully, but it's not an accident either, make it impossible for you to talk to them because they don't want you to talk to them. What then happens? Um, the Pontifical Council for the Interpretation of Texts says, Hunter, naturally pastoral prudence. Naturally, pastoral prudence would strongly suggest the avoidance of instances of public denial of Holy Communion. Pastors must strive to explain the concern to the concerned faithful the true ecclesial sense of the norm in such a way that they would be able to understand it or at least respect it. In those situations, however, in which those precautionary measures have not had their effect or in which they were not possible, the minister of communion must refuse to distribute it to those who are publicly unworthy. They who do this with extreme charity and are to look for the opportune moment to explain the reasons that required the refusal. They must, however, do this with firmness, conscious of the value that such signs of strength have for the good of the church and of souls. The good that is done. So you will have many times as a priest when you will have someone come to you and say, um, it was really tough hearing you say that to me last year, Father, um, but, but it was the right thing and it was, I'm glad you did. And they will frequently not say it at the moment, but, you know, I've not been a priest that long in that many parishes, but I've had that experience time and time again. It can be tough being a priest, but you've got, for the sake of the people, the good of the people, we have to be authentic with them. Not hard, but firm. Now, the Pontifical Council for Legislative Texts notes that even a bishop can't dispense you as a pastor from this. Um, so, Jake, could you read that last quote? The discernment of cases. The discernment of cases in which the faithful who find themselves in the described condition are to be excluded from the Eucharistic communion is the responsibility of the priest who is responsible for the community. They are to give precise instructions to the deacon or to any extraordinary minister regarding the mode of acting in concrete situations. Okay, who is responsible? The pastor. You're the parochial vicar, are you responsible? Well, the text there said it's the pastor who's responsible. Um, and I've been a parochial vicar, I've been a pastor. When you're the parochial vicar, you think, I'm liable here, it's all on me. It seems to me church law is saying the judgment lies with the pastor. It may well be you as parochial vicar, you don't know all the facts. That there's something in the um, secret going on here, brother and sister, that you haven't been told about as the parochial vicar. Even if you doubt the motives, clarity, whatever, of the pastor, the buck stops with him in this question. What about if you are a parochial vicar and there is no pastor? Like some bishops, like my bishop, doesn't actually really assign pastors. He likes to have the freedom to be able to move guests. If you are, if you are what's called a parochial administrator, then in canon law, so the, the the text there doesn't say pastor; it says responsible for the community. 
which would then be the parochial administrator. Um, yes? Um, going back on a point earlier, so if Sue and John resolve to live as brother and sister and go to confession, then they can receive Holy Communion. They can, okay. yes. But they need to receive Holy Communion in a way that won't cause scandal to others. What might that mean? They might go to communion once a month, uh, and once a month they go to Mass in another parish, but the rest of the time, because they want to be part of um, St. Joseph's parish, they're part of that parish life, but they do go to communion once a month somewhere else. Or they just always go somewhere else. Or they move to this parish after they had this second union, and no one in that new parish knows that the marriage they have isn't a church marriage. So there isn't any scandal. And that is frequently the case. What happens if in the new parish, though, they start talking to people and people realize this? Is that technically causing scandal? Then, yeah. So that they would, if they want to be in that situation in the new parish, they would need to know for themselves to avoid describing their past in a way that kind of reveals things that in a very proper sense are private to them. Covering a lot of pastoral situations here today. And we all know, you know, even in our own community, this is a big issue. And we all know in ourselves how the, the damage of all of these imperfect unions impacts us. And so we need to hold firm for the sake of future generations, because uh, how everyone lives affects everyone else. And so if you're soft with one person in front of you, you are in a different sense being hard with someone else. That said, you will have people who will just misinterpret you regardless. I remember going on a pilgrimage uh, with a group when I, was, when I was a deacon, before I was ordained priest. Um, and I'd been nice to this certain person through the whole thing um, and at the end of it this person said to me when you're a priest you'll let me receive communion because you're so nice um, which made me feel in many ways kind of a failure um, I should have been I should have been meaner yeah um, but people will misinterpret us and that's not all our fault and misinterpret us in multiple ways so try to be coherent articulate compassionate pastorally sensitive but there are things you're going to say that will just get misinterpreted yes So there's a way they can present things to you that is a lie. They can say, um, we're now going to be as brother and sister, or we're going to be continent, and they're not going to be. 
um, and they can say they've talked that all through with another priest uh, and they're not being honest with you. Well, parishioners in some sense are not honest with us on many things. That, that, that's just, we need to just kind of at some level be comfortable with that. Um, but there are scenarios where I've been in when I've said, I know another priest said that to you. And I know he was the vicar general in his diocese and said he was giving you permission to enter into this second marriage. But there is just no canonical grounds by which he had the authority to say that. And therefore, even though here in this parish you've been receiving communion for 10 years, I'm now the pastor and I am now telling you you may not receive communion, and if you present yourself, I will deny you. There in front of everyone. And how do you let the like, ministers of the deacons know? Like, without bringing in their whole situation, like, how do you just say that? If the deacon's not well, or even the ministers aren't necessarily like... So they obviously... The right. Completely. So they, they have to trust you. Okay. If they don't trust you, you're going to have problems on all kinds of things. But... You need a dynamic where um, when you're training them to begin with, they need to know there are some situations that are private and not for them to know, but that you will inform them somebody may not receive communion, um, and that is as much as they need to know. And if they're not comfortable with that, they don't need to ha take on this role of being an extraordinary Eucharistic minister. In practice, I've not, I've not had a situation where I've denied someone communion and they have on an ongoing basis gone to somebody else and received it. I've had that happen as a kind of one-off in the mass on that day and then they've not come to my church on future occasions. Um, but if you've got a kind of open rebellion scenario, um, Yeah, indeed, indeed. And I think, and I think that's where training them, the extraordinary Christian ministers, well to begin with. So if you flagged up the situation when it's academic and not personal, in advance, they're going to be less surprised. Um, but generally speaking, you as the pastor, having had that awkward conversation or awkward encounter there at the front. Um, is I think very unlikely you're going to have that then map out as you're kind of fearfully describing. Last page I want us to cover is page six. Page seven we're not going to go through. Basically I've got a whole page there saying despite certain commentaries you, Amoris Laetitiae has changed nothing um, is, is my take on it as a church document. Page six, what pastorally speaking, what is our approach? So I've summarized, I've said the call to conversion. What is a conversion? It's a change of life, a change of heart. So I say, how is a priest to engage pastorally with those who are divorced and remarried? I say he must, however gently, however slowly, call them to a different way of living. I referenced John Paul II that the call to believe, the call to the gospel, always includes 
the call to repentance. First words recorded by the Lord in the Gospel, repent and believe. These two things go hand in hand, repent and believe. Amendment of life. I say, living with a partner who is not your true spouse is what Christ said it is, namely committing adultery. Thus repentance involving a firm purpose of amendment must involve the intention to separate from the second partner. Or if duties to children in the second union prevent you from separating, then at least living as incontinence as brother and sister rather than as husband and wife. Um, the next quote we've already had on an earlier page, I think. Have you all heard of Walter Kasper, German cardinal? Um, so in, 19, in 2014, he suggested that the church should introduce a state of penance for those who are divorced and remarried. So a state of penance, what that would mean, some kind of penitential state that you would kind of somehow get enrolled into as a pathway to some kind of reconciliation. I say, but the current official practice already has a transitional penitential state for those in this situation. They're not excommunicated. They remain in the church, but they're not admitted to Holy Communion. So this state is not permanent, but only for as long as their situation persists, i.e. until they are committed to living in complete continence. And then quoting the Catechism, Josh, could you read that line towards Christians who... Toward Christians who live in the situation and who often keep the faith and desire to bring up their children in a Christian manner, priests and the whole community must manifest an attentive solicitude so that they do not consider themselves separated from the church in whose life they can and must participate as baptized persons. They should be encouraged to listen to the word of God, to attend, to attend the sacrifice of the mass, to persevere in prayer, to contribute to works of charity and to community efforts for justice, to bring up their children in a Christian faith, to cultivate the spirit and practice of penance and thus implore day by day God's grace. Why are you imploring grace? Because you're not yet ready to change, but you kind of want someday to be ready to change. And that is true of all of us in lots of different sins. Um, when those sins affect us in our public reality, then they affect our public status in the church. Say in smaller font, I say, it has been suggested that the Greek oikonomia practice would better act as a penitential remarriage state. So that was Caspar's proposal. I say, however, the notion of repentance doesn't just include feeling bad about something, but involves change. And the penitential prayers of the Greek Orthodox ritual make you feel bad, but aren't oriented to change. If you are curious, pages eight and nine uh, summarize um, the Greek Orthodox practice, what they call oikonomia. Um, I, um, I did a whole course on this when I was doing my doctorate. At the time it seemed utterly irrelevant to anything and then suddenly this thing came up as a topic and I ended up doing talks to priests up and down England um, as in about 20 people, well, more than that. But, uh, <laughs> 
Um, sometimes you study something that seems very irrelevant and then it becomes pastorally relevant. Um, the Greek Orthodox wedding service for the second wedding, rather than being in white garments, is in purple penitential garments. They are, rather than having a prayer of blessing, they have a prayer of repentance. Um, let's turn very briefly at page nine, top of page nine. Um, The third bullet point, where I'm comment summarizing the literal the liturgy itself, I say, the first prayer refers to the prostitute Rahab, who is forgiven by God, and the prayer asks not only for such forgiveness for the couple, but that they receive the gift of tears and repentance, tears and repentance for the thing they're just about to do. Weird. The second prayer is perhaps even more indicative of what the Orthodox understand themselves to be doing. It alludes to St. Paul's advice where he says that it is better that the unmarried and widows remain single, but then adds, but if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. A permission, he says, is a concession. Go on, the second penitential prayer misapplies St. Paul's words to the couple, saying, they, unable to bear the heat and burden of the day and the burning of the flesh, come for a second nuptial communion. As you have legislated by means of your chosen vessel, the Apostle St. Paul, who said to us needy ones that it is better to marry in the Lord than to burn. You, good and friend of men, merciful and forgiving, have pity, loosen, remit our blows, because you are the one who has taken on our infirmities. No one, in fact, is without sin, and neither can even one day in the life of man be without impurity. So kind of saying we're all sinful and we're going to be sinful, so Lord have mercy on what we're about to do. Um, which is just a very um, odd sort of prayer. Uh, and you can, in the Greek liturgy, you can have four weddings, but you can't have a fifth. God gets angry then. That's ridiculous. Why yeah. do a lot of the Greek practice was kind of fixed, so that one of the critiques in general of the, the Greek, the, the Orthodox, is they're kind of frozen in time at about the end of the first millennium. Um, their canons were established by an emperor who didn't want a lot of divorce and remarriage and fixed a number of how often that could happen. Yes? I was trying to say this for the end. Sorry, okay, the yeah. I've heard it's like, I haven't seen it myself, but very legalistic, like asking, you know, how many times do you and the couple, you know, partake in intercourse and stuff like that. And so like a lot of people, they'd rather just not do it because they don't want to answer those types of questions. So my question is like from a pastoral standpoint, how do you ease someone into that? Like we're doing that much. Yeah, not, not, easy, not easily. So yes, you do get lots of people that say, well, the whole annulment process is just, is just too much. I don't want to do that. Or um, it wouldn't be fair to my second spouse to do that or, or somehow. Um, it is all a public reality. It affects other people. Um, so other people have to be brought in. But it, it isn't easy. Um, 
but it is part of, you want this public declaration, you need to go to somebody outside of just yourself because marriage is a public reality. Last question. What does an annulment say for, um, like if the couple has children, are they going to grant an annulment or not? Yes, because you can have children with people, someone you're not married to. As a technical aside, the children aren't then illegitimate because they were in um, what external form was a marriage at the time the children were born. So a declaration of nullity doesn't render those children illegitimate. Um, okay, in summary, what have we been looking at today? One of the most difficult pastoral situations in the church at the moment in your time, it will continue to be difficult. Um, there will be other difficult situations. I imagine a whole mess of transgender stuff that canon law barely has begun to even think about. Um, the point in some form will always remain the same. What is the path to beatitude for the couple themselves? and their impact on the wider community. What does the Lord say? What word from the Lord do we have on this point? That has to be our guiding light. And ultimately, um, it will be for their good, as well as the good of the community, if um, they follow what the Lord says.